Welcome to the Labor Radio Podcast Network's weekly Wednesday live stream, where we interview labor leaders about current labor issues. On our February 10th, 2021 program, we discuss NAFTA 2.0. Is it better for workers than NAFTA of the 1990s? Our guests included Lori Wallach of Public Citizens Global Trade Watch, Eric Gottwald, an AFL-CIO trade specialist, Alejandro Villamar of the Mexican Action Network Against Free Trade, and Rick Arnold of Canada's Common Frontiers. This week's Labor Radio Podcast Network member hosts are Jacob Morrison of the Bally Labor Report and Judy Ansel of the Heartland Labor Forum. My name is Evan Papp, and I co-produce the Wednesday Weekly Livestream. Enjoy the show. All right. Welcome, everybody, to the Labor Radio Podcast Network's weekly Wednesday live stream, where we interview labor leaders about current labor issues. My name is Jacob Morrison. I have a union talk radio show here in Alabama on 92.5 WVNN. You can also find us on YouTube and Facebook, all the social media, everything like that, at the Valley Labor Report, where uh, my co-host and I uh, talk to Alabamians about labor issues. My co-host today is Judy Ansel. Judy? Hi, Jacob, and hi, everybody. I am in Kansas City, where I produce the Heartland Labor Forum, a labor radio show that's been on the air going on 32 years. We started April Fool's Day, 1989. I don't know who the fools were, but I'm happy to be here. And we are supported by many of the local unions in Kansas City. What Judy and I decided to talk about was NAFTA and the USMCA. In July of 2020, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement, or USMCA, was put into force ostensibly as a kept promise, right, from President Trump's 2016 campaign. The USMCA is a renegotiation of the North American Free Trade Agreement, which was shepherded by Bill Clinton in the 90s. But since the USMCA's passage, there has been just very, very little discussion of it. Uh, And, you know, like many things in the Trump era, enormous news stories are totally swept away by the tide of daily controversies and even bigger stories. So we wanted to revisit this because it's a really important topic and it's going to affect all of our lives, especially those of us in the manufacturing sector. This is going to be affecting us for years to come. Our first two guests are Lori Wallach, a director of Global Trade Watch, which is a Division of Public Citizen. She's going to be helping us get a better understanding of the the history of NAFTA and the USMCA and a broad overview of what those two trade deals did. And then we're going to be talking to Eric Gottwald. He's a trade specialist with the AFL-CIO. He's going to be digging more into some some of the labor aspects. So, Lori, we're going to go to you first. Can you tell us about the, the trade environment before NAFTA? Well, thank you for inviting me. The dirty (laughs) little secret of NAFTA and the agreements from, you know, the 1990s on is they're not mainly about trade. The idea of calling them a trade agreement was like a branding stunt by the multinational corporations and governments that were in cahoots. The better way to kind of think about them is some kind of delivery mechanism for a whole smorgasbord of corporate rights and protections, and then serving up handcuffs on governments at the federal, state, and local level with respect to all kinds of stuff behind the borders that has nothing to do with trade. From things like food safety inspections, the way states decide to spend their state procurement money, 
you know, are they going to spend it locally? Are they going to have prevailing wage laws and other conditions, things like food safety standards? And then, you know, some of the corporate rights were things that are actually antithetical to so-called free trade. So, you know, classic monopoly protections for big pharma to be able to charge whatever the hell they wanted on medicines and undermine access. So that whole stew of sort of corporate protectionism and limits on government regulation, kind of like a whole corporate smorgasbord of you know what a lot of people at that point were calling the neoliberal agenda or the Washington consensus, this one size fits all, largely not trade policies, but there was some trade stuff in there that made the world happier, more profitable for big companies and really stuck it to workers and consumers in all the countries involved. So just for instance, you asked what the hell was the thing that led to all of that offshoring? Well, the NAFTA includes investor protections that literally made it cheaper and, and, and a lot less risky for US corporations to offshore their production. And knowing that labor rights in Mexico were suppressed with the government in cahoots with basically protection unions, a lot of those companies thought, wow, a lot of very hardworking, smart people just across the border who we can pay a pittance. And with these investor rights, there's no risk that might be typically associated with offshoring production to a developing country. Foreign investors had special NAFTA what are called investor state rights to attack in secret tribunals and get cash out of us taxpayers. If a government dares to put into place a protection for consumers or workers or the environment, the consumer groups and the enviros and the labor groups and the family, farm and faith groups who opposed it in all three countries, we were all considered protectionists and backwards. And, and in fact, 25 years in NAFTA and it proved we were right. A million US jobs are officially certified by the government under a program that's quite narrow what it even includes as being offshored under NAFTA. Two million campesino farmers from Mexico displaced off their lands because NAFTA, you know, corporate power grab guaranteed new rights for foreigners to own Mexican farmland, basically undoing the land reforms of the Mexican revolution. And $400 million are paid out to corporations doing those investor attacks over tax expands and timber policies and energy policies and water policies that were pro-people and pro-planet. And in the course of all that with no real union rights in Mexico, all the, that investment came in, but real wages in Mexico and manufacturing are now 40% lower than in China. They're lower than they were in real terms, inflation controlled them before NAFTA. So the corporations got what they wanted and we all got the shaft. So what did the USMCA change about NAFTA? So there is the good, the bad, and the not done. The good news is those investor rights got largely whacked, totally whacked with Canada, limited greatly with Mexico. So those attacks in the corporate tribunals are not going to, are largely going to be a thing of the past. The outsourcing incentives in the investor section also got largely removed. 
there were some really outrageous environmental rules like the Canadians, you're gonna speak with the Canadian in the second section, the Canadians were very upset about rules that forced the government to continue exporting natural resources if, if exports were ever started. So if you wanted to save water and if you wanted to not have tar sands oils being exported, once you started, you couldn't stop the spigot. It was called proportionality. And so the mandatory exports of natural resources language was taken out. Some significantly improved labor standards and enforcement were added that um, could make a difference if it's enforced. The environmental standards were improved a little, but not, you know, a lot of stuff got left out and there is no special enforcement gains there. On the job side, what are called the rules of origin were tightened up. So the way NAFTA was originally written, products could be from outside of NAFTA, outside of the Canada, US, Mexico group, and could still get the NAFTA benefits, like they could be mainly a value from China, and they could get in. And you know, if you want to have higher labor and environmental standards, you don't want leakage like that, because then the companies that do the right thing end up having to compete with goods made in China or someplace else, not under those rules. So the rules of origin getting fixed were important. And there were some other things like a sunset review that were half done. The bad news is they added some additional new bad stuff, including some new rights for the big tech giants. It's a chapter called Digital Trade. It's another of those branding stunts. It's not about trade. It limits regulation for privacy, for the big platform's liability, like when Amazon or someone sells you something, they say you can't sue them if it burns down your house or hurts you because they, they consider it a free speech protection. So some of those crazy big tech and monopoly rules related to that ended up getting added. Mm -hmm. And some of it you can't fix unless you fix WTO as well as NAFTA. But it sure as hell was a step in the right direction. And I see it as like the, the new floor from which we need to advocate. So that bad stuff that came out can never be in another agreement. And then we need to build on the good stuff. And the garbage that's still in there still needs to be taken out. Right. Well, Eric, she, you know, she mentioned uh, that about the labor protections in Mexico, and, and, and that's a good place to loop you in on, because that that was one of the things that I remember being trumpeted about was that, that you know, this adds some kind of labor protections in Mexico. And and you mentioned there's been an, in, an independent review after the USMCA was passed. What were specifically those labor protections and, and to what extent have they been enforced so far? Good question. I think a couple pretty significant things happened on labor under USMCA. The first is that the agreement required Mexico to engage or, or pass a very deep fundamental reform of its labor laws. If they are implemented and enforced, will allow Mexican workers to organize independent trade unions that are actually capable of bargaining with employers. So we have, I think, a much stronger set of rules, a, a much stronger enforcement, monitoring enforcement mechanism than we had under NAFTA. And that is like, it's like night and day. I mean, that's clear. What was it that pushed the AFL-CIO National Federation to endorse it? There were, you know, three things that I would point to that, that got us to, to yes. When we saw the opportunity to fundamentally rewrite Mexican labor law, have these real monitoring and enforcement mechanisms, both 
with regard to the government and individual employers in Mexico. And I think when we saw that some of these corporate giveaways that Lori was talking about, you know, these uh, extended pharmaceutical patents, and this investment state dispute settlement, when that stuff was also taken out, we saw a deal that we could endorse, you know, to improve the trade framework in North America. Because remember, we're starting from NAFTA and that's like being way in the basement. And I think USMCA has got us back up to the to the ground floor um, and that's improvement. It's not perfect. It is, it, you know, it is far from perfect, but it is now the new floor for us. Any, any trade deal that the U.S. negotiates now has got to be at least as good as what we got on labor with USMCA. Thanks so much. That, that was great. So with that, we're going to be talking to Alejandro from Mexico and Rick from Canada to dig in some more to the USMCA. I'm Judy Ansel, and my show is the Heartland Labor Forum in Kansas City. And I have been an international trade activist since NAFTA was passed in 1993. I took my first trip to the border in 1994 and met maquila workers and joined an organization that would help organize maquila workers. It was a U.S., Canada, Mexico organization called the Coalition for Justice in the Maquila Doors. It was founded by the AFL-CIO, as a matter of fact. One of the things I learned as I learned about the conditions was that NAFTA made Mexico safe for multinational corporations to invest. That was its prime purpose. And the other thing I learned was that only international labor solidarity was going to be able to raise the standards for all of us in North America. So in this program, I wanted to talk about international labor solidarity and talk about how our labor movements and progressive people from our three countries can benefit from the USMCA if, it, if we can and how we can proceed to build that solidarity in the future. Our guests are Rick Arnold, who's been fighting free trade longer than I have, I think, he retired as executive director of Common Frontiers, a national coalition of labor, faith, and social justice organizations focused on the Americas. He joins us from Northumberland County, Ontario. Welcome to the show, Rick. Thank you, Judy. And I met Alejandro Villamar during struggles to support Maquila workers in the 1990s. He was a founding member of the Mexican Action Network on Free Trade, and although he's now retired as a researcher, trade union leader, and advisor on related issues. Both Alejandro and Rick are activists searching for alternative policies to neoliberalism. Alejandro joins us from Mexico City, and welcome, Alejandro. Thank you, Judy. I'm glad to be here. And, well, it's great to have you. Can each of you give us a brief overview of the benefits or losses that resulted in your countries from NAFTA and what unions wanted to get fixed in the renegotiation. I'm gonna start with you, Rick. Let me take us all back for a moment to the early 90s where the uh, current or the previous NAFTA was being negotiated. The prime minister of Canada at that time, Brian Mulroney, talking to particularly Canadian, the Canadian workforce, promised, and I think this is probably an echo of what was happening in Mexico too, he promised jobs, 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 full-time, well-paying jobs 
will increase after we sign this agreement. That was his uh, mantra. So what actually happened in the sub subsequent years? Well, between 94 and let's say 2000, the job numbers didn't vary greatly. They sort of stagnated. But as of the year 2000, between 2000 and 2017, Canada lost 540,000 manufacturing jobs. You have to multiply this by a factor of at least 10 if you under, understand what it would mean in the U.S. context. Canada's GDP, gross domestic product, grew at a slower pace in the 25 years after the first NAFTA than in the 25 years before NAFTA. According to Unifor, which is our, the union that represents the car worker, the auto workers in Canada, nine out of 11 plants that were built in Mexico during NAFTA 1, were, were, nine out of 11 were built in Mexico. So what we have seen, and when you look behind the statistics, we've, we're seeing in Canada over the last 25 years, the hollowing out of full-time unionized employment. And it's been shifting quite quickly over the last number of years to part-time, poorly paid, precarious jobs. That's the scenario that we face as we now, as of July 1st, with the ratification of what we're calling, I guess, the uh, NAFTA 2.0, we tend to call it here. But that's what we're facing now as that starts to uh, go into uh, implementation. Mexican workers in, in Matamoros looked at, I guess, both the labor law reform and the fact that AMLO increased their minimum wages by a significant amount. I mean, uh, keep in mind the fact that the uh, wages in, in Mexico along the border, despite the great productivity of the Maquiladoras, wages have been absolutely stagnant since 1993 when, when NAFTA was passed. But yet last year, the, the wages of workers along the border where what was it doubled Alejandro I think but but the workers are organizing can you talk about that and and what kind of a challenge this is bringing to push the Mexican government and the state governments to actually implement the labor law reform and can you talk about Susana Prieto Terrazas Susana Prieto Terrazas is the labor lawyer which uh, play an incredible role during the successful strikes in the border. And she can to mobilize 48 companies and workers to fight not only for the salaries and successfully obtain the increase of the wages, but also, also for first time in many decades to organize the first a free trade union in the border. It is a very, very important, but at the resistance of the local government right wing and also the leaders continue to be terrible against the workers, which is the, the violation of all laws, all international agreements. This is the concrete resistance of the big companies because our complicity between the uh, political power, but also the business uh, owners. I also want to bring Eric back into the conversation. How can international solidarity push this thing and make this thing work 
so that we get increased rights for all of us in North America. There are some models out there. And one of the models is the Hemispheric Social Alliance. That model, which was created but not only in North America, but for all of the Americas, was created with labor as one of the key components. Labor leaders is key to that, but it also had many other sectors of society involved. And it was through that sort of coalition that over a three to four year period, they all came together, all of us from different countries, and were able to stop the FTAA in its track in Argentina. And so I would suggest that one of the models we should look for in terms of labor solidarity in the three countries in North America is one, they have to be able to talk to each other, but also the need to have the backing of significant other sectors of society with all with labor and other sectors pulling together and with more consequential intervention in the economy by the governments, which is what NAFTA has tried to stop in traditionally, I think that's that's going to be one of the way forwards. That was an excerpt from our February 10th, 2021 Labor Radio Podcast Network live stream. You can watch the full episode by visiting our website at laborradionetwork.org and you can follow the conversation on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram using the hashtag LaborRadioPod. The Labor Radio Podcast Network live stream is co-produced with Chris Garlock. My name is Evan Papp, and I'm the executive producer, engineer, and editor of the live stream. And I host Empathy Media Lab's podcast on labor, political economy, art, and culture. And we're a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, which has grown to over 80 shows in five countries and serves as a one-stop shop for audiences looking for labor content and as a resource for labor broadcasters, podcasters, and content producers. Our social media guru is Harold Phillips of Working to Live in Southwest Washington. And remember, we all play a role in this working class struggle. Union solidarity forever.